Welcome to Polygon's Quality Control. My name is Charlie Hall. I'm joined today uh, by one James D'Amato, founder of the One Shot Network. How are you doing, James? I'm doing good. Hello, heroes. Uh, thank you so much uh, for having us on the Polygon podcast. Now, this is this is a special week at Polygon. We're doing something called Backlog Week, and we're talking about all those games that are piled up on your Steam list, or in my case, on a shelf here in my office, that you just haven't quite gotten to yet. And I wanted to bring you and your team on in particular because of of what you do. What is the One Shot Network? So One Shot is dedicated to sort of expanding uh, the potential of the role-playing hobby by welcoming new people in, by making games more approachable, and making uh, role-playing in general uh, a nicer place to be. Uh, So we do things like actual plays, where we record actual game sessions for role-playing games like Dungeons & Dragons, or even newer, weirder ones like Starcrossed. And uh, we give you an opportunity to, you know, hear how the game plays before you actually sit down and play it yourself. We also have a host of interview and discussion programs so that you can get to know people from around the industry. Make those names that are printed on the spine of your role-playing books uh, actual people that that you understand and sort of know through the magic of interviews. Nice. Now, you're not alone today, of course. Who, who have you brought along onto the show with you today? Maybe you could introduce the crew. Because you uh, sort of addressed the existential horror that is trying to address a backlog, and for role-playing games, that's... Uh, even worse, because unlike video games, they're taking up a not insubstantial amount of space in your life. It's very heavy. It's extremely heavy <laughs> to have a backlog of role-playing games. So I brought uh, some of our uh, finest network personalities. First up, we got Megan Dornbrock. She runs the Modifier podcast. It's an interview program where she talks to designers and other luminaries from around the RPG industry about changing and hacking games. That can be folks who are making a brand new role-playing game or folks who just make changes to D&D at home uh, without sort of making a profession out of it. Hey, Meg. Hi, hello. Next up, we've got two new voices to the One Shot Network. Uh, the first is DC. DC is a role-playing game designer uh, who's doing a hack of Blades in the Dark um, that is extremely cool, and I, I kind of want him to talk about it more than me, uh, but he's going to be heading up a program called In Theory, where he talks to other designers from around the industry more about like in-depth theories in RPGs. Hey, DC. Hey, how's it going? And your new game, just so people can find it? It's called Mutants in the Night. Uh, it's specifically about an uh, allegory of marginalization and how... Uh, in the current climate of both politics and uh, social politics, how people can both find and understand marginalized identities and lifestyles and both participate in uh, those lifestyles in positive and reinforcing ways. Uh, so you can see why you would be excited to play like a new interesting game like DC's and why we want to be able to address this. And and finally, that brings us to Daniel Kwan, who is going to be starting a new show on the network called Asians Represent uh, with his podcasting partner, Agatha. Asians Represent is going to be about the contribution of the Asian community to the RPG community. Um, It will be like an interesting history lesson and sort of contemporary design introspective. Uh, I'm really looking forward to it. Hey, Daniel. What's up? (laughs) (laughs) Well, thank you guys all for coming on. You know, it's, it's interesting. I was before we started the show here, I was showing off one of my my recent purchases, and that is a Darker Hue Studios Harlem Unbound. It's it's a new source book for either Call of Thulhu or Gumshoe role playing games. Um, it's up for a Diana Jones Award 
uh, this year. And it, it talks about New York City in the 1920s, prohibition, the, the experience of African-Americans in this landscape of of horror. And I'm, I'm so interested in trying to get a group together to play this. But I mean, guys, I don't have a I don't have an RPG group right now. Yeah. <laughs> and it's really bugging me. Um, and I just kind of wanted to throw it out there for, for folks that like me have a collection, have this backlog of role-playing game systems. Like where do you begin with something like this? I know you guys have done a lot of work to try and find a consistent, a strong group to do these podcast experiences, to do these products that you want people to download and listen to and enjoy. But, but even just casually, how does, how does your average person go out there and find people that want to do this with them. You know, I, I will say uh, before we say anything here that the advice that we're going to give is not universal, right? Uh, and one of the reasons that uh, I'm, I'm happy that we got the team on the show here is I'm sure my experiences are not going to reflect uh, the experiences of the group. Uh, so I'm excited to get a bunch of different perspectives on this. Uh, the sort of uh, like you know, pithy answer that I usually give people is, hey, starting a podcast is actually a great way to do it. Uh, because one thing about RPGs uh, and most hobbies is it's one of the first things that's like easiest to talk yourself out of. So really uh, finding a way to make a social commitment to it uh, that is a little bit deeper than like, hey, we're going to have fun uh, actually helps them uh, stick together more. But of course, not everybody has uh, sort of the patience to do that. Um, I think there are a lot of obvious traditional routes. Uh, so moving through the list quickly, there's asking your friends. Um, I think because social anxiety goes hand in hand with a hobby like this, it's really easy for folks to talk themselves out of their friends actually sharing this as an interest or potentially having it as an interest. Asking first is always best. Uh, most like you, you can imagine, Charlie, if one of your friends just asked you to join their group where they played a bunch of different RPGs, uh, your problem would be solved. And perhaps uh, our listeners out there have friends out there who are, you know, wanting their problem to be solved as well. Uh, and <laughs> by asking, you'll be the person to do it. Uh, the others are going to local game and comic stores. There are plenty of stores in my area, Chicago. Um, maybe not everybody has access to those in their local areas. But if you do, uh, they run events uh, of organized play for larger games like Dungeons & Dragons and Pathfinder. Some stores even specialize in uh, checking out indie systems and smaller games. But, you know, they make money by bringing people in the door. And those events are a great way to do it. Even if organized play isn't your jam, uh, it is very likely that there are going to be other people there who like other types of experiences and meeting people there. It's like a great way to network because everybody's there to play games. And the last of the traditional routes, I'd say, is going to conventions. Um, Gen Con's coming up. It's huge. It's expensive. Not everybody has access to that. But if you do have a con in your area, there's a chance that you'll be able to meet people there. Those were my sort of traditional routes, but I am betting that uh, my team has some other ideas. I I've actually got one. Um, I don't know if this extends out into like the United States or anything like that. But in Toronto, we have like there's this Facebook bartering group called Buns. Have you have you ever heard of that? I know. Not. So years ago, uh, a whole bunch of millennials got together and started this bartering group called Buns. And the currency was our like local metro, like our tokens. Okay. And people would just people would just trade stuff. Be like, I have all these board games looking for gift cards or like 
uh, or booze or tall, tall cans or whatever. And I'll trade you for this book or this plant that I don't need, or I need a bicycle. So I saw some guy trade a car for an iPhone and <laughs> yeah. And then there were all these offshoots of buns. There was like a dating zone. I actually met my partner on it. Uh, and then there was like a friending zone and all this. So I actually went on the dating zone and was like, Hey, I'm actually in a relationship, but we're looking for people to play D and D with. And since this dating zone had been such a like a positive and inclusive community, we felt like this might be the place to find fellow RPGers. And I found a group there, and we ended up like playing together for like a year. That's wild. How, how many uh, subway tokens that cost you? Oh, you know what? I actually I made I got all of the dinnerware in my house for nine subway tokens. That's wild, and the, and, and, the app, and it's blown up, and now they have their own their their own cryptocurrency, which is crazy. And there's an app and everything. Jeez, oh, because of course they do. Yes, this is a whole podcast episode on its own, actually. Yeah, yeah. seriously, cyberpunk. <laughs> we we stumbled onto a this American life or something. <laughs> this Canadian life. Yeah, this no, Canadian life. So I, I think uh, of the non traditional routes, one that I'm very excited about, and I think DC could speak to quite a bit, is Discord and different Discord communities. Because DC, uh, surrounding his game, has a thriving and vibrant uh, Discord community. Uh, DC, do you want to talk about gaming there? Yeah, um, the online space is a place that I've put a lot of research into on how to find people to play with. And there are a lot of experiences that I've had between going through different discords through reddit through uh, a lot of fan networks to find people who have similar needs and experiences as you do um, one thing that i think a lot of new players don't know is that experienced players are probably more hungry for you to play than you are they are so open and welcoming and Whatever game, whatever system, whatever background that you have, there are people out there who want you to play. And it's a lot of because they are fans of the system or a podcast that you may enjoy together or um, an actual play series that you watch on Reddit or I mean that you watch on YouTube or on Twitch. So um, one of the things that I highly recommend if you take the approach of going online is to take a piece of content that you really enjoy, uh, whether that is a show or a podcast or even a specific book, like you have the uh, Harlem Unbound book now, um, there are a lot of people out there who are going to be looking to play that game, to experience it with a bunch of new players. And designers are very easy to find nowadays. You can find them on uh, either Reddit or Twitter. And um, the surrounding communities that they build around them, like Discord, are available to the public for the most part. So, um, for example, the easiest example is if you love Dungeons & Dragons and you've heard a lot about Critical Role, and Critical Role has this book out that is about their setting and it seems interesting to you, there's a Critical Role Discord you can go into, and there's a Looking for game section uh, with a bunch of rules to make things easier and to uh, expedite the process for you. And depending on how you want to play, because they have such a large fan base that spans the globe, you can find people that you can play with online, or you can find people who are local to you within 
an hour. Sometimes if you live in a major city, there are people in your city that are like, hey, we have five people and we're looking for a sixth and we love brand new players. We'll teach you everything. We'll show you what resources you need. Um, it's just that the direct connection there, I think usually people who get into games initially, as I've my experience was, is I buy a book and I go, okay, blank spot. <laughs> <laughs> there's, 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 nothing, there's nothing to what do. What a next. wonderful weekend I had reading this book. And, and then that's right. it. Right. Yeah. And uh, the networks exist out there. It's just uh, finding that, that piece of media that ends up connecting you to that fan base means that you'll find a wealth of people who are willing to introduce you to the world and how to play and they're usually very very lovely in my experience yeah that's a huge uh, advantage of like very directed fan communities like if you liked dc's pitch for mutants in the night uh, up top like there's already a vibrant community of people that are playtesting that game uh, and they are more than happy to guide you through an experience like that um, and, and welcome you into that world and you know, even if like you, you play mutants of the night and you go, okay, I, I want more because you sought out that experience there. It's likely that people in that forum are into the other things that you're into as well. Uh, that's why I like going to places like the one shot discord. I know, um, there are a bunch of our folks, uh, we're in the awful squad junior discord as well. Uh, so that means there are role players, uh, already in your polycon sub communities, uh, that are probably looking for games as well. So it's an easy conversation. Role playing wigglers. Are you kidding? Yeah, me? yeah, yeah. Ah, <laughs> oh, fantastic. Uh, um, now Megan, you play online a lot, correct? Yeah, I do. And my approach is similar, but a lot less elegant than DC's. And that is to just sort of cry into the void that is Twitter. <laughs> <laughs> which it turns out lots of other people do. So I've found uh, online games that way, and I've found a couple in-person games that way. Um, people who are specifically looking for other players in my area, which um, living in Brooklyn in New York, like I do have that ability to go to game stores. Like there are shops around that I could crash, but that's kind of terrifying to me, to be completely honest. Um, as, as much as I may want to play more games in person, I do find that I play a lot of games online. Um, and we use, um, primarily we use Roll20, which has a system built in for, you know, looking for games that you want to play. They've got their forums and communities and message boards and stuff, and you can set up your uh, your game, whatever it is that you may want to run or want to play, and have it listed as looking for players or looking for a GM or, you know, basically... Come play, come play with me. Come play with me online. And it works out really well. Roll20 has really evolved so much over the last couple of years in particular. They've got licensed plugins now for D&D, for Pathfinder. Mm -hmm. But it's it's really what blows my mind about Roll20 is it just it works on every platform. It works in a browser. If you can open a browser, you can run Roll20 now. And it's... It, mm -hmm. it brings the table wherever you need it to be. And and to me, like that's not even the wildest thing about Roll20. Roll20 also has a really vibrant community uh, for looking for game. Um, mm -hmm. You can decide you want to play a role-playing game in the morning and find a game by the evening. Uh, and it all happens on one platform. Uh, it's really incredible. That's amazing. That is amazing. Well, that all right. Discord, Roll Twenty, of course. Lots of things I haven't talked, I haven't thought about to, to try and find a game for myself. Some things that that I definitely have and need to kind of get the gumption up. But say that I want to be the the dungeon master, perhaps, mm -hmm. or I want to create something here in my local space or with local friends or with people I know. Are there systems that you guys? 
can think of off the top of your head or that you have experience with that give a better experience for those who might not have role played before. Good, good introductory games into kind of the the genre, if you will. What's out there right now? One that uh, I like a lot for introducing to new groups because there's not a lot of heavy mechanics to it. And even if you're a new game master, it's uh, got built-in mechanics to sort of make you good at uh, the game and providing the experience is Dread. Uh, It's a horror role-playing system that instead of like dice or cards or anything like that, uses a Jenga tower uh, to resolve its mechanics. Essentially, you play a character in a horror movie, and if you do something that is risky or, or, you know, might uh, not work out for you, you pull a brick from the tower, and if the tower falls over, you die. So it's something that you can get a big group of friends around uh, and you can play out a horror movie with them. Uh, And, you know, you don't have to be good at creating a tense atmosphere because people are already tense about the tower in the middle of the table. And you can sort of sit back and relax and watch your friends get scared, which is super fun. (laughs) I have two. Uh, Going off of Dread, I really like Ten Candles. Ooh, yeah. Mm. Uh, Ten Candles is really good, especially for like first time GMs because it's designed for a one shot session. Uh, So you have dice and you only use six sided dice, but the atmosphere is created by actually having 10 tea lights lit around, you know, a bowl full of water. And you play it in the dark. It's super atmospheric. It's easy to learn. And just like Dread, you can apply it to like any any setting you can play it in like i played i've played 10 candles um for like a zombie apocalypse i've done dread with you know aliens versus predator um and colonial marines i think it's better in dread than in a video game format (laughs) Uh, but the other system that i would you know really plug for a new person is the is powered by the apocalypse or the apocalypse world system it's really simple there are a wealth of games spanning multiple genres and it's super easy to hack i'm sure megan if you want to talk about that but (laughs) yeah no everyone is legally required to have one powered by the apocalypse hack that they've been working on yeah i'm I'm publishing one yeah good same you have to (laughs) yeah i don't want to see you get arrested yeah. yeah, we'll come for you. Now, there's a profusion of, of Powered by the Apocalypse um, games that are kind of out there mm-hmm. uh, as podcasts right now. One that I'm listening to is, a, is an older um, campaign run by the Gamers with Jobs community called, uh, I believe, Orbital G- Decay. Um, but and, and the way they run it, the players actually contribute a lot of what's going on and the setting and the characters and, and parts of the story. Tell me more about that aspect of Powered by the Apocalypse, Megan. Oh, sure. So uh, I think Powered by the Apocalypse is is really built to do that from you know from the from the initial game from Apocalypse World, and that's something that a lot of creators have taken into consideration when they make their own hacks of the game, when they make, you know, Monster Hearts, when they make the uh, Avatar The Last Airbender version of it, you know, ev- any anything and everything is empowered by the Apocalypse game. Um, but that is something that is just so ingrained in the system um, because it gets your players involved. You know, that's that's what we want to have as a, as a as a dungeon master as a game master you want to have your your players involved and so having those things built into the system uh to create the npcs to create the world that you live in to tie your characters to one another the relationships that you have the bonds that you have all of those little things make you want to play more and we do and it, it also <laughs> empowers players to walk away from the table uh you know feeling like well i've 
basically done a lot of the things that the GM does. Um, so you, the, the, you're only a stone's throw away from GMing at that point. And the other wonderful thing about Powered by the Apocalypse is it's a root system. If you learn one Powered by the Apocalypse game, whether it's Apocalypse World or Dungeon World or Masks, it is going to be very similar to hundreds, thousands even, of other games that you could play. Uh, so learning that game introduces you and makes you able to play so many others. Oh, yeah. So my recommendations for a good first game actually um, are GM-less games. So sorry about the premise of your question. I decided to ignore it. Um <laughs> Uh, so that would be games like Fiasco or like Questlandia uh, or, and their sister game to that, which is a, a noir mystery called Noirlandia. And these are all really good games that, again, use, I think they all use D6 or Questlandia and Noirlandia use a, a deck of playing cards like poker cards. And you are working, you're all players, you are all actively creating the world that you play in as part of the game. Like those are the mechanics of, say, Fiasco. You are setting up this Coen Brothers movie-esque scenario where everything is going to go terribly wrong. Um, you are, you, you don't even, uh, one of my favorite things about it is you don't even make your character first. You kind of decide what the world is and what your relationships to each other are and what these locations are. And it's all, Questlandia is like that too. It's all world building. It's all creating this thing together. So you all are sort of the GM and you all feel this sense of ownership of this story that you've told. Last but not least, DC. What do you what do you recommend for quality control listeners to get started? My recommendation spans towards a question that I ask myself as a designer often. And uh, if you are going to be working together with people locally, the first thing I think that you should do is get an assortment of games that have different levels of responsibility based on people's experience and what they want out of an experience. Because if you're going to play Dungeons & Dragons, that's a game where one person can stand as an expert or someone who has more experience or who has the book and can help other people along through playing the game. And some people come from a place where if they are brand new to role-playing, they want to be in that position. They want someone to go, here's what you do next. Here's the next step. Uh, then there are, are games where like the Powered by the Apocalypse games, there's a wide set of everyone gets to contribute on this equal level. Um, my ideal way of going through many versions of that is to go into 200-word RPGs. Because there are, if you look up just on Google 200-word RPGs, there are hundreds of games out there created that are made to be understood and run very quickly sometimes they can be played uh, long form mostly short form but you get to get a taste of different styles of play of different levels of responsibility how people end up um, functioning together at a table so understanding what people want out of an experience and being able to pitch that to people i think is the best way to get someone in a seat at the table now 200 word rpgs correct me if i'm wrong they're the product of almost like a annual game jam kind of thing yeah it's a competition but most of the designers i know don't take it as a competition they take it as this this great exercise and and this um collaborative sharing venture where everyone goes i want to take the weirdest thing i can do or there's this idea for a game that I, I'm not sure how it would fit into a particular system and fitting it into, I believe it's 600 words. 
I mean, no, it's 200 words. Yeah, it's a 200 no, word 200 RPG. words, yeah. No, um, I'm thinking about some other thing I have to work on. Um, <laughs> they, <laughs> they have a uh, this 200 words that you have available to you. And uh, for quality control, um, there are finalists and there are there's the four winners, I believe, that you can look through and see what games ended up rising up to the top. And a lot of the time, through the other entries that are available, you find some stellar games that just didn't happen to make it because the games above them are just slightly more interesting or it just hit the judges in a particular way. So there's a lot of good stuff to experience there, and it doesn't take a lot of time or dedication. And uh, it also breaks down the barriers of having to have more, um, more equipment and resources for an entire table. So it's kind of like the, the cheese platter. They're also all free, too. Yeah. 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 You bring the platter of RPGs over and you go, hey, do you like this? Do you like that? And, you know, what kind of cheese do you want on this? And then, you know, see what people like. You can move forward that way. I didn't finish on time this year. I wrote, I co-authored one based on that Japanese reality TV show, Terrace House. Ooh. Oh, what? That's going to be mine for next year. So I, <laughs> I made a dread hack. Nice. It's very fun where you can use any genre. And uh, whenever you pull out a tile, instead of it being that when when it falls over, it might say um, it will either progress the story uh, positively or negatively, being like a conflict or I forgot what else I called the other one. I haven't played it yet, but it's fun in my head. So that's cool. <laughs> <laughs> so obviously, whether you're playing with friends of yours that you know, or strangers that you found by weeping into Twitter, Megan, or anyone else that you might've found on Discord or, or anywhere else. It's, you know, you're playing with, um, with flesh and bone. You're playing with other human beings. How do you make sure that, you know, you're keeping everybody at the table comfortable? Yeah, uh, this is a really good question. Um, and because the game design community is really obsessed with uh, cultivating experiences for people and translating those experiences into mechanics, uh, there are a few ways that folks have come up to do that. And those are safety mechanics for role-playing games. And the most common one that folks know about is the X card mechanic. Uh, basically, you put a big note card in the middle of your table with an X on it, or you can even cross your arms in front of your face uh, to create an X pattern. And that essentially signals to the group, if you touch the card or hold up your ex, uh, that something just happened that you are uncomfortable with. And it's kind of like, uh, hey, this is not a, a thing that we really should negotiate about. This is a thing that like we need to take this out in order for me to continue to feel comfortable at the table. And the, I think, original idea behind this was uh, for folks who might have some trauma in their past. Uh, like, for instance, I am frightened of bees. Uh, it's not to the point where I can't handle it in games, but like if there is a bee in a room with me, I'm not super comfortable. Uh, and I've met plenty of folks who have phobias uh, that like, if it comes up in a game, it's like, oh, this is too squicky for me. I got to back out. And that's where the X card comes in. Because if you're a group uh, with a group of people that you don't know, you have no idea what their phobias are. If you're with a group of people that you do know, you might not know everything about them. And so having that very clear and strong strong communication tool in the middle of the table is a great way to keep everything like copacetic. Anybody else have strategies or, or methods or observances about those kinds of safety mechanics in their games? 
I, I really like the X card. One of my day jobs is I, I use RPGs to teach teenagers uh, history and science and social skills. Uh, and the X card is, is a really good way of allowing people to think about you know, what they might not like to experience in the game. Uh, but sometimes people might might come into a game and know exactly what you know is their limit. And I also really like lines and veils. Um, that's another tool that's used a lot at conventions. So like a, a line is you know your hard limit. It's something you don't want to cross. Uh, so like in D and D, it could be I don't know, like torture. Um, if one of your lines is torture, it doesn't happen in the game. The non-player characters don't do it. The players don't do it. It it doesn't happen in the game. Uh, a veil is something that you kind of like pan away from or you fade to black on. It happens, but you don't really, it's part of the story, but you don't have to keep it in the spotlight. It kind of fades out of the spotlight. Yeah, that's definitely really good guidance. And, you know, it, it's not something that you see mentioned in great detail in, in a lot of these, I guess, more mainstream role-playing products. Um, and I, I wish it's something that I that I saw more of in those those documents. Thankfully, in indie games, which are taking off, you do see it a lot more common. I, I think a game that actually got written up on the Polygon site, Starcrossed, has the X card built right into the game. And the sample packet actually has an X card included in the materials that you print off. Uh, so it's something that we're seeing more and more. I, I think it's sort of an extension of a lot of things that you see uh, in a lot of communities where we're sort of slow to adopt uh, uh, changes that might be even common sense changes that really make the experience better for everyone from an objective sense uh, just takes a while to get into the mainstream. I would actually like to add something that is safety adjacent for me uh, and I, I think for a lot of us, and that's accessibility. Yes. In oh, games. Good. Uh, yes. <laughs> Tell me some more about this because, you know, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a six and a half foot tall, burly cis white <laughs> dude. Like I don't, Issues of accessibility do not crop up in my day-to-day -day life. What what do I need to be thinking of? Exactly. So uh, that's all sorts of things. And this could be, uh, this can and has been many long episodes of Modifier talking about different ways in which we can make games uh, and the spaces that we play them in more accessible for people. So uh, what I would suggest to people who are listening at home is to be as open and communicative with your game group, uh, especially ahead of time as you are able to, because even friends that you have known for a long time you don't necessarily know what their limits are physically or uh if there anyone has any like neuro atypical uh, things that you need to keep in mind um and it's and it's going to be a group effort when you're playing a game together uh but things to be aware of are um so like i'm legally blind so things that i have to keep in uh, aware of are am, am i playing a game that's very visually busy that has lots of pieces on the board or that i need to know what's going on on the opposite side of the table we need to figure out how to make that work or are we using dice that i can read that sort of thing so are, are you playing with someone who needs um sign language like um is hard of hearing needs a different way to get their attention or to communicate with. Um, then there's, you know, are you taking enough breaks for everybody? Is everybody physically comfortable in the space that you've chosen? Are, are these chairs okay? You know, that everything comes into play with accessibility. So my, my biggest tip is going to be communication on that. Yeah. I think there's this parallel that you can kind of draw towards the, the social aspect of like bringing people into your home. If you were to have people over for dinner, then you would first ask, oh, does anyone have any allergies before I make food? Um, how much space do I need at a table for how many people? And 
well, last time this person was over, they needed an extra pillow for their back because they have back issues. Like, it's the same thing. And uh, putting that forward is, like like James said, it's a, it's a common sense issue that um, we don't always pull directly into uh, games on a large scale and in some indie games as well. But uh, it's something that I'm glad that we're adopting and moving towards. Well, guys, I'm I'm really just so grateful that you took the time to to come onto the show today and to talk to me about this, about working through our backlog. What I wanted to to find out is like where can folks find out the most about the One Shot Network and and find you all in your various shows online, James. Well, if you're looking to uh, see shows on the One Shot Network, the best place to go is oneshotpodcast.com. Uh, there you'll be able to find One Shot, where we experience a lot of different role playing games, and you can actually listen to play sessions of games that we talked about here. Uh, we've also got wonderful shows like Modifier, uh, Asians Represent, and In Theory, where you can hear discussions about games. Uh, if this was the sort of thing that really like pulled you down a rabbit hole and you wanted to know more, uh, there's plenty of information there. And if you're looking uh, to talk to me uh, because you've got follow-up questions or what have you, the best place to reach me is on Twitter, at OneShotRPG. And I guess for me, uh, I, I'm, an, I'm mostly on Twitter. You can find me at Daniel H. Kwan, K-W-A-N. Uh, and I live on Twitter. Uh, <laughs> and if you would like to cry back at me and maybe play a game, you can find me at Meglish. It's M-E-G-L-I-S-H. And I, DC, you can find on Twitter, unfortunately not at DC, but at Dungeon Commander, uh, with no E in the commander. And um, I will often be talking there and about tabletop theory and about community involvement and promoting a lot of games by uh, people of color and people of other marginalized identities. Love it. Well, thanks again, guys. And until we've got another game to talk about, this is Charlie Hall for the One Shot Network crew. Thanks for listening to Polygon's Quality Control. listening to the Vox Media Podcast Network.